Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauck. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. This episode is brought to you by American Farmland Trust, the founder of the 15th annual America's Farmers Market Celebration. Each summer, AFMC brings together thousands of supporters nationwide to celebrate local food, agriculture, and community. Support your favorite farmer's market as it competes for state, regional, and national awards. Voting runs from June 19th to September 18th at markets.farmland.org. Today, we're speaking with Paloma Lopez. Paloma is a self-described impact food entrepreneur, a sustainability consultant, and the CEO and co-founder of Future Fit Foods, a startup based in Longmont, Colorado. Future Fit uses regenerative and circularity principles to offer convenient, tasty foods that are high in plant-based protein and are delivered in reusable and returnable packaging. Paloma is a former global director of sustainability and brand strategy for the Kellogg Company. She has 20 years of experience creating a vision for healthy and sustainable food systems. Paloma, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here. Now, you and I originally met at Edible Communities Edible Institute in Denver in the fall of 2022. We chatted a couple of times for just a few minutes each in the hallways of the Institute, and I knew immediately I wanted to have you on Eat, Drink, Think because you have such a deep knowledge of the intersection of food and the climate, supply chains, packaging, and feeding people healthful, convenient meals. And you seem to be a big picture thinker as well. I think it's safe to say you're a food futurist, but maybe in a whole person, whole planet kind of way. So I wonder if I can begin by asking, how does the future look to you? Are you an optimist? I'm definitely an optimist. I do believe we'll have to work very hard to get to that very positive future because we do have some challenges ahead of us. But I'm definitely an optimist. I know humans can move fast when they want to, and we can be quite innovative. And there's a lot of technology that can enable the change we need to see into the future. So when we're looking at the future of food, hopefully that's a future where everybody can have access to healthy foods that are not only good for themselves, but also for the planet that is our only home and our only place also to grow foods, right? We'll talk a little bit more about regenerative agriculture and regenerative practices in the farm, but there is a lot of work that we need to do in the farming space to ensure that people access nutritious, delicious foods into the future and that we continue to build a food system that is inclusive, where everyone gets to eat those great foods that are also good for them and good for the planet. And what do you think is our biggest food system challenge? And what are you looking to address with your business? Yeah, so there are a number of challenges. There isn't just one, but if you were to ask me what's the biggest challenge, I would say it's soil depletion. So soil experts believe that we have about 50 to 60 harvests left. And that has to do with the amount of topsoil that is left as a result of pretty large-scale farming and really farming for yield versus farming to conserve the soil and the water and, and other things. So we really need to reverse that 
trend because if we don't stop soil depletion, then we will not be able to secure healthy food for people. There's also another aspect of soil depletion that is directly linked to biodiversity. Of course, if we don't have those harvests into the future, there are many foods that actually only exist because we have biodiversity and bees and others that enable the proper propagation, I guess. Pollinating. Mm -hmm. Pollinating, yeah. And without that uh, process of pollination, uh, then we would not be able to access a lot of the very tasty and nutritious foods that we enjoy today. There's also uh, another aspect to soil health, which is the fact that when you have really healthy soils, you're also able to take carbon from the atmosphere and capture it in the soil. And that's really important kind of at the moment in time we're in right now in history where we're seeing temperatures rising and uh, we're in the middle of a climate crisis. So carbon sequestration through healthy soil is one of the best ways to actually address that challenge. Um, And that's directly linked to our own um, well-being into the future, even I would say survival. Uh, And then finally, you know, through uh, more regenerative practices linked to uh, healthy soils, we also could secure higher income and yields for farmers, um, better water practices, uh, so there's there's a number of really a uh, long list of benefits uh, if, if we if we do go that that route into really caring for the soil and healthy soils uh, through regenerative practices. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also uh, some studies that are starting to come out now that link um, uh, more nutrient dense foods to uh, soil healthy soils. Uh, there are uh, there are at least two studies already that are pointing out that direction. There's Rodell already has also a study in the works right now, I believe with vegetables. Uh, but there's um, there are also studies that show that conventional farming over the last 50 years, we've seen a decrease in a number of um, nutrients uh, in foods coming from from uh, those uh, farming practices. So there's a direct relationship between healthy soils and healthy foods. Mm-hmm. I was speaking with Chloe Servino on the podcast recently about those very studies. And she also mentioned something exciting, which is, you know, similar studies have proven that there's this direct correlation between flavor and healthy soil as well. So those plants that are better for you also our taste shown like in scientific studies to actually taste better, which is pretty great side benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the things that I just mentioned in your introduction, maybe things our our listeners aren't necessarily thinking about every day. So can you tell us what you mean by impact food entrepreneurship and talk to us a little bit about the principle of circularity? Yes, absolutely. So impact, um, entrepreneur refers to the fact that you you have gone into new business development and new businesses to re- to really address some of the social and environmental challenges uh, and the objective is to drive positive impact for humanity um, so that's what we mean by an impact entrepreneur it means that you're not just after profit you're looking to create value um, that is beyond profit so for future fit foods we're um, we've uh, from the very beginning we looked at how we could create value uh, that was social and environmental value 
Um, and so we measure this in terms of the quality of the food we deliver to people, how that impacts their personal health. Uh, we also look at how much waste uh, or lack of waste there is in the value chain. We don't even call our supply chain supply chain. We call it value chain because we believe that every single step of uh, that process should be creating value. Um, it shouldn't just be uh, a supply and kind of dehumanize it. We need to rehumanize it because there are people uh, all along that process that need to benefit from it, um, as well as natural environments that we depend on. So that's what I what we mean by impact. It means that everything you do is designed to create uh, a value beyond profits. And so the way you design, um, you come up with new foods or packaging takes that into account. In terms of circularity, uh, essentially, um, when we talk about circular economies and that then gets applied to circular businesses, uh, we're really talking about models that really look at how everything that is used comes back into the system as an input. So every output comes back into input. So in the case, for example, of um, packaging, we would be looking at what are the ways in which we can get that packaging back. So it can continue to be packaging for multiple uses, multiple times, whether it is through um, uh, packaging that can be uh, re that reusable packaging or uh, packaging that can uh, be uh, compost uh, composted, and uh, that's uh, anything but single use essentially. Um, you know, pretty much everything that you do in the business has that principle in mind is how can we make sure that we avoid waste and that we create um, systems that enable that 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 material to come back. Um, obviously, the food that people eat um, is food that provides energy for people. So we're not looking for that to come back to us, <laughs> but we're looking for um, packaging, for example, to come back. And this even becomes more relevant when you look at the entire value chain we were just talking about. So um, when you look at earlier processes, for example, when you are um, making food, right, you're looking very carefully about at what happens with any wastewater and how do you actually enable that water to come back into the system to be reused, even if it's for watering plants. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, what you're, we're trying to do is make sure that it's not water that just goes to waste. It has to come back to provide value to the system. Um, and I, th I think, you know, in terms of when you're making food, you know, there is a lot of byproduct in general that, um, that turns into waste. And so it's, it's challenging to identify uh, means for all those waste streams to become inputs once again, but that is a challenge that we're trying to solve here. And I know I'm not alone. There's, there, are, there are many entrepreneurs now working on circular solutions. Um, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is create value for people on planet um, in ways that are prevent waste, um, right? So uh, we're just trying to, and through, you know, technologies, there are increasingly better ways to measure um you know, our ability to avoid waste. Uh, one of the best examples is probably in farming. I mean, farming is so different now than what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And technology enables farmers to use precision um, irrigation. And a lot of the, the work that haps, happens in farmers now, it's very precise and that avoids waste, which is great. So again, you know, you apply the circularity principles everywhere in that value chain. You're looking for partners also in that 
value chain that are also upholding circularity principles, or at least are interested in working with you in, in testing some of them. It's an interesting shift, I think, also on the consumer side to not assume that waste is the default, because I think there's a whole generation of people that grew up thinking that part of whatever we eat or the packaging around it is is just discarded. Um, and probably that shift will help enable things on your producer side and corporate side to maybe keep that going, I would hope. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always like to make the point here that if we were not as wasteful with our food, there would be a lot more food for everyone. Um, you know, we, we talk about in kind of the food space, we talk about food waste and food loss, and there are two different terms. Uh, but here in the Northern Hemisphere, our problem is primarily food waste, which is essentially food that um, is ready to eat, ready to be enjoyed, but somehow ends up in the waste bin, whether it is because uh, of expiration date or oversupply and under demand for certain things. Uh, and we're talking 30 to 40%. So it's a lot of food that doesn't make it to people's mouths. And so when we talk about food security, the first number one way to solve for food security is actually avoiding uh, food waste. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the humanizing aspect of the value chain that you were speaking about earlier? Yes. So historically, food has brought people more than nourishment. Uh, at least physical nourishment. Historically, food has been a source for um, community, a source for um, you know building culture, um, uh, conversation, um, joy, togetherness. Um, historically, food has provided jobs for people that uh, enable people to live um, livelihoods, uh, secure their livelihoods. So. Um, Food has always been at the center of who we are as humans. It's been an expression of who we are, and it's also brought us together uh, in very healthy ways. And so I think what we unfortunately have lost some of uh, over the last 50, 60 years through the um, kind of the, the industrial revolution, you know, the industrial food revolution and kind of the, you know, the last few decades where We've moved very much into convenience foods. Uh, we have started to lose the sense of where the food comes from. Uh, we no longer have a connection with the people growing the food, the people selling the food. Um, it's become quite dehumanized. And so with that, um, with that aspect of our convenience foods today, we've also lost the, all of the um, intangible but very valuable aspects of food. Um, and so I think one of one of the, the challenges we're facing right now is that into the future, we need to figure out ways to bring convenience to people while not losing the great benefits of um, foods that are real, really humanizing, where we know where the food comes from and the stories of the foods. And um, again, where they're not just physical substance, but also provide emotional joy 
Mm-hmm. And speaking of storytelling, you grew up in Spain and on your website, you shared some childhood memories of foraging and harvesting favorite foods like almonds and figs and persimmons. And it made me want to rush right over to the Spanish countryside because I'm looking out my window here in April. And I mean, I see a frozen lake. It's beautiful, but it's still frozen. How did that early connection to food at its origins affect your career? I think we go back to the 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 meaning of food uh, in people's minds, in people's memories, and I, I I I would say that everyone, every single person, has got memories about what food meant for them growing up. Maybe not always positive memories, but I, I bet you there's a lot of foods that bring joy to people. Um, they don't necessarily need to be the healthiest foods. Um, they're just foods that, at some point growing up, brought a lot of joy to them. So I would just say that. You know, when I relate to my memories from my childhood, I I believe that everyone has got memories about joyful moments with food. Uh, In my case, though, um, my memories of food had a lot to do with my time outdoors um, and with my siblings. And so I I know in my my blogs, I talk about... um, uh, looking for wild asparagus with my sister and like spending hours looking for wild asparagus. And um, we used to have you know, access to like almond trees and like, you know, going through the entire process of what it's like to wait until the trees start flowering and then uh, getting the almonds and then they, the process of drying and going through the machine and everything that goes um, with that. And so I have memories of memories were really that were not so much just about enjoying the food. They were about what learnings came with my connection with food. So again, right, you're you're spending time with siblings looking for wild asparagus. Um, you're understanding that you don't actually control nature, that you know, that you actually are at the mercy of nature and, you know, you're looking for something that's exciting. If you find them, you're lucky, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you, you um, I feel that in, in my case, I had the opportunity to create a very um, special bond with nature and with a source of food at a very early age. And I, I think that's stayed with me all these years because I continue to be a... Um, passionate farmer, um, a passionate, um, I wouldn't call myself a farmer, but I do have a, um, uh, a lot of foods that I grow in my garden and I'm very passionate about, um, the time when, when I have the opportunity to visit farmers and spend time with them. And I understand how difficult it is to, um, how much work goes into growing food. It's, it's either something you're foraging and you, you actually are at the mercy of nature 100% and you kind of have to be lucky, right, in some ways. Or you've worked really, really hard to nurture the soil that is then going to give you food. So again, I, I do think that the more people spend time connecting the, with food, especially when they're at um, Yan, um, I don't think that goes away. I think then then you start understanding that food goes beyond that physical nourishment. It really brings a lot of joy. Um, and it also enables us to be grateful for living in a world that is so generous, that provides foods for us, but also um, for all the farmers that work so hard um, season after season to bring us great foods. 
Um, so again, you know, foods are not just something that you buy in the supermarket, you eat or you throw away. Um, there are there there are great there are amazing stories. There's so much effort. Uh, there's so much nature in in food. Uh, there's so much to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. And you spent many years as a global executive for major food brands. Can you talk about your journey from corporate work to entrepreneurship? Yes. Um, I had a very exciting um, career with Kellogg's. I spent about 15 years with the company in a number of different roles. Um, I did spend uh, a few years working directly on the global society initiatives of the company and um, spearheaded the first sustainable culture program for the company called Kellogg's Origins. Uh, this program started in Europe with rice farmers, actually in Spain, and then um, uh, we started working with wheat farmers in the UK, and I believe today the company is working or has worked with over 400,000 farmers, and they have over 40 projects worldwide. Um, so, yeah, during during that time, obviously, I had the opportunity to really learn a lot about food, a lot more than just working uh, in an office. <laughs> you can work in, in, in the food industry for many years and never step into a farm. I guarantee you um, a lot of people in the food space has never been to uh, one of the farms. Um, but in my case, I had that opportunity. Um, I didn't start in sustainability. I actually started in, in product innovation, brand management. Uh, but I could see, uh, and this was back in uh, early 2000s, I could see that there was a lot of appetite from people to learn more about where the foods were coming from. We were already hearing from a lot of um, consumers that they wanted to know more about their the origins of their foods and what was in their foods. And so uh, when I started working on the Kellogg's Origins program, uh, one of the, the main objectives was um, to build a strong connection with the farmers uh, while also provide uh, transparency to the ultimate consumer. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was, I think, everything we thought it was going to be in terms of creating value beyond profits, right? Um, even for our own employees at the time, it was so exciting to learn from the farmers and feel like we were so connected to the farmers and understanding their challenges and supporting them uh, with uh, natural practices on the farm to help them address some of the challenges that they were experiencing. Uh, and so that, I'm not surprised that it grew the way it did. Um, I moved on to different, I actually travel um, with the company to some of the different projects in different sites, but ultimately um, I ended up moving to headquarters in Michigan. Um, and again, you know, that program continued to grow, had the opportunity to um, do some great programs with all the way from quinoa farmers in Bolivia to cocoa farmers um, in the West Coast of Africa. Um, and there's just um I think an incredible opportunity, uh, whether it is in large companies, but in small ones, you did ask me about the transition into entrepreneurship and why I decided to actually move on from uh, working in large, in a large company with obviously large impact as well. Um, I think after 15 years working in that space, I, I did realize that some of the things we were really hoping to see into the future of food um, you know, going back to the earlier point I made about ensuring that people have access to really healthy foods, uh, but also addressing the challenges 
that we just talked about, about how do we design foods that are take into account soil health and take into account biodiversity and take into account the circularity principles. One of the things that really dawned on me after many years working in food was how difficult it is to completely change a very large company, right? Because, um, uh, you know, a large company that has been around for many years was designed to operate a certain way. And so while there are incredible efforts happening in that space, um, and large companies are doing a lot of really good work in the space of uh, even, you know, uh, working with farmers on regenerative practices and so forth. Um, I believe that we have a design challenge, uh, that our food system is challenged by design. And, and that really goes back to the fact that our food systems today are inheriting hurting everything that we started doing 60 years ago because it was what we thought we needed at the time. But now into the future, you know, we are, um, we're, we're needing food systems that take into account all the things we talked about earlier, the kind of the environmental side of soil health, of li- living in a world with limited resources, the need to ensure that healthy foods are accessible by more people, uh, but also, um, you know, the fact that um, that we have lost a lot of humanity in our foods. And so if you look at the current design of how foods are designed, um, they're designed for convenience and they're not necessarily designed for a lot of things we're talking about in, in, in the sense of putting people's well-being and planetary well-being at the center of design and decision-making. And so for me, it was um, almost like a moment of, you know, maybe we do need more people working on new ways of imagining our food systems, you know. And while large companies continue to do the best they can, we do need to have entrepreneurs, innovators that are working in new ways of thinking of our food system. Um, and I think it's through everybody doing their best, but we do need a lot of innovation if we are to create a much, much healthier future, you know, food system. And so that is why I decided to go into entrepreneurship, because I wanted to use the learnings um, from all those years working in food, uh, but I also wanted to experiment with different concepts and try to design in a different way. Um, to see what it what can be possible. At the Edible Institute, we the attendees receive samples of your packaged soup product from F- Future Fit Foods. And what struck me about it, even though it was designed to be a convenience food, a just add water and eat anywhere soup, was it tasted like comfort food. You could taste actual vegetables like corn. It was flavorful and spicy. I was in a kitchen when I ate it, but I would have loved to have it out with me camping. How did you design those first soups and where are those early experience experiments taking you now? Yes. Yeah, so when we started uh, Future Fit Foods, our first product line was a line of soups. Uh, the idea was... Uh, there's a story actually behind soups and why we wanted to start with soups. Um, soups were um, really became very popular in the 1800s in France, in the streets of Paris. People would actually go to eating places, they call them eating places, um, to restore their, their health. Um, and so the, these places actually serve primarily soups and broths. 
And that's what people would eat to restore their health. And that's back in the 1800s. Um, these places where people would go to restore their health ended up being called restaurants. So to mm. restore, um, which is to restore. And that landed kind of the idea of restaurants. Fast forward 200 years plus, um, what we see now is that um, I wouldn't necessarily say that the soup aisle in the supermarket is the place where people go restore their health. Uh, if you look, look closely at the labels, um, uh, it's, you know, many of those options are actually not that great for your health. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying many of them. So we have moved away very, we've moved very far away from that initial concept of restorative foods. And so the idea for Future Fit Foods to take on soups was, well, what if we were to actually design foods for what they were originally intended for, <laughs> to restore people's health? So we looked around and we not only thought about what ingredients we wanted to put into our soups, we also thought about what is the best way to actually preserve the um, kind of the organolectic um, uh, benefits of, of fresh food and and the nutrients. And so we landed um, with a freeze-drying technique, which was originally invented by the Incas uh, in the um, uh, Peru and some of the, the, the high Andes, right? And they, they invented this technique a uh, long, long time ago to preserve their uh, potatoes. And so they would, uh, during the really cold months, uh, really cold nights of June, but warmer days in, of the month of June, they would actually, um, they would, they would uh, freeze their potatoes at night. They would thaw them during the day. They repeated this process for a long time and they landed something close to freeze drying. Then NASA came in and perfected the, uh, the process. Uh, but freeze drying is the best way to actually preserve nutrients uh, as well as texture, aroma, and all of the benefits in cooked foods. Um, so we ended up using that technique because we thought, hey, you know, we want to make sure people get a great food experience, but we also want to make sure they get the most nutrients possible. Um, so we did think through that and that, you know, Amy, when you were saying that, you know, your experience that you could actually, you know, see the parts and taste the parts almost like you were having a fresh soup is because we really put a lot of thoughtfulness into the design of not just the ingredients, but also what is the best way to preserve this food without using anything artificial. Uh, and that's kind of where we landed. So again, the brief for those soups was really um, creating nutrient-dense soups that we used organic non-GMO ingredients um, that way we actually knew where every single ingredient came uh, from and we had assessed the kind of the practices of the, the suppliers. And we also looked at the packaging and we not only um, experimented with industrial compostable packaging, of which we've gained a lot of learnings and um, I can speak to that as well if, if there is interest, but also we use, we replace a single use boxes that are used to deliver, um, to do home deliveries with uh, reusable boxes and saved a lot of carbon by moving into a, a model of, you know, circular packaging model. So where is that taking us next? Uh, what we did learn from uh, working in the soup space was uh, we had 10 superfoods in each one of our soups. And um, uh, what we learned is that working 
uh, mostly with superfoods can also be very challenging in terms of being inclusive for everyone, but also uh, very challenging from a sustainable value chain perspective because um, some of those ingredients um, were hard to get at different times of the year, had very short lives, uh, like green papaya. You could only have it around for three, four days before it got cooked because otherwise it turned orange and it was no longer a green papaya. <laughs> and so the uh, things that you don't know when you start creating foods and then you realize, well, actually, this is not the most sustainable way to go about it. So we did learn that if we want to create foods that are accessible, nutritious, delicious, and accessible, we do need to um, simplify a little bit uh, the recipes in ways where we don't compromise on society, we don't compromise on taste, but we are not so dependent on superfoods. Um, there are actually a lot of um, superfoods that are um, more sustainable and some that are less sustainable. And so it's really understanding how important it is to look closely at uh, the recipe and ensuring that um, that it hits on all of these ambitious goals of you know, something that is nutritious and tasty, but also takes into account the sustainability of, the, of that value chain. And if there are, and I can tell you, even before we signed those soups, we, we did make some choices of we're not going to use certain ingredients because of the challenges in the value chain, like, you know, pink uh, Himalayan salt or, <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, so, so yeah, there were several ingredients we decided to leave outside of of our um, recipes for that reason. So moving forward, we are going to be uh, we actually have been uh, working on a new product line of snacks that actually use uh, primarily their their plant based, their amazing, super tasty ingredients, high in protein, super high in fiber, which is by the way one of the one of the one of the uh, nutrients that are lacking in the American diet, much more so than protein. Um, and also, again, with the same principles of how do we make sure that we deliver foods that are transparent, that are nutritious, that are coming from. Um, in this case, we're moving into regenerative, um, regeneratively farm ingredients, so beyond organic. Uh, so I'm really excited about that as well. But we also have a much simpler list of ingredients. Mm. Mm -hmm. And and what's the timeline on the new snacks? Yeah, so we're planning to launch in June 2023. So we only have a couple more months. We've been experimenting in the kitchen and uh, we're very pleased with where we are right now. It will be a small product line. And we'll take feedback from people and build it uh, with that feedback. Um, but yeah, we're very excited. High uh, in, like I said, high in protein, high in fiber um, foods uh, with no sugars added, no oils, uh, super clean, super great, um, just light, crunchy experience. And do you plan to move back towards meals eventually or are you going to stay in this snack space for a while? Yeah, so we will, um, I think it's likely we will come back to meals. Um, I think what we have learned is that when you're a smaller um, a startup, um, you know, the, there are certain things that you, there's so much you can do with the capital that you have at this moment in time or at that moment in time. 
And so meals require, um, they're more complex. And while it's something that we would like to tackle, um, we don't think that right now is the right moment in time for us. Um, I also believe, and the vision for Future Free Foods has always been to um, become or enable local food systems. So I think um, into the future, as we work into meals, um, I think we we will want to put into practice some of those that ambition of how can we create models that are locally based with culturally relevant foods. Um, and instead of trying to create necessarily meals that are nationwide, everybody gets the same thing, uh, but create micro, almost, you know, micro settings, right? Not necessarily micro manufacturing because you're more making food and selling it locally, uh, but really more focus on the local needs than trying to create models that are nationwide. And then would that be a model that could be replicated in different areas around the country? Is that the goal? Yeah, the idea is actually to enable under-resourced, uh, talented uh, cooks, chefs, people who are passionate about making food and equip them so they can actually make foods that are culturally relevant for their communities. Uh, this allows the rehumanizing the, the the food system and the way we were just talking about earlier. Um, but it also creates value creation in those communities. Um, and I think with technology, it's possible to actually create these micro manufacturing sites that are much more locally um, accessible, um, you know, and not have to be so highly dependent on very efficient, large machines that are centralized. Um, you know, we're seeing it with the 3D space, right? Um, you know, people can make stuff out of their homes, right? Technology is going to enable us to do a lot more locally at more affordable prices than in the past. And I just really hope that, you know, through Future Fit Foods and other entrepreneurs that are working in the space that we are able to bring uh, more food solutions to our local food systems. Oh, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you a little later on, but I'll jump ahead because I was thinking about the tension between convenience and whole food and how we can have non-highly processed convenient foods at scale. It sounds like your answer is sort of um, a distributed system. Does that make Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that as long as, um, you know, as long as we're we continue to promote convenience in the way we understand convenience today. I think we will struggle to access the more culturally relevant foods and create local food systems that are really strong that, you know, we've seen it through COVID, right? The importance of having access to food, um, food not so far away, right? Where you don't have to depend on international shipments. Uh, so yes, so I think if we are able to use technology to distribute the capability of people to make foods, then we will be able to decouple ourselves from the need of so much packaging, right? Because once you start producing more locally, then, then kind of the old idea of the milk delivery, <laughs> you know, like the, the reusable container becomes possible, which is something that is very difficult to do at the national level right now. But when you move into smaller 
community settings, then reusability becomes definitely an option um, that, you know, we will be able to experiment. And, you know, the packaging is a big challenge of our current convenient, um, convenience food space because they're not real great solutions, honestly, uh, even with all of the recycling uh, infrastructure and dollars uh, that have been put into solutions were still very challenged. Only 9% of all plastics in the, in the United States get recycled. Um, and that's not good enough. I mean, that means 91% are going into landfills and water bodies and places that, you know, may even enter, you know, our bodies at some point, um, not great for our health. So yes, we do need to actually look into you know, how do we enable these healthier food systems that also take into account the benefits of proximity? So convenience, uh, the convenience we understand today is convenience that is everybody gets the same anywhere you are in the country. But really this, mm. the meaning of convenience is more, if I need a snack, I can find a snack right now. If I need a meal, I can get a meal right now. If I need that meal delivered to my home, I can get it delivered to my home. It doesn't necessarily need to be packaged. It doesn't necessarily need to be a national system. Mm -hmm. But the economies of scale of the last 50, 60 years that our food systems have been built upon uh, require that that kind of, that approach. Uh, but as, as technology enables us to distribute the ability to make food and package food, I think there are new possibilities on the horizon for us. I like that idea about proximity. I know with uh, your first project with the soups, you kind of sidestepped traditional waste streams. Um, and uh, in addition to proximity, are there other packaging ideas that you're thinking about that you could tell us about? Well, um, I mean, in the ideal world, we would promote more the idea of refill. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's, not just in the food space, I'm seeing it more in other, um, you know, other categories. And uh, I think everybody's trying to figure out how do we enable refill uh, products so we are not so dependent on, you know, every time you buy a product, you're using a single-use packaging that goes into waste. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly into waste because of the limitations of our uh, infrastructure today for recycling and composting. And so I think the idea is, um, you know, for me is, is how can we move into larger packaging and rely less on single use or single serve? Um, how do we, how can we promote uh, bulk? Um, and then how do we promote partnering with local um, businesses that enable us to uh, provide bulk without relying so much on the single-use packaging. So that's what we're looking at right now. Um, I think we're only about five years or so from some real breakthroughs in packaging. So I'm very hopeful and very excited about what I think hopefully will be coming with um, at Future Fit Foods. We've experimented with um, um, seaweed packaging uh, and other types of plant-based materials. And we're getting very close to identifying solutions that will be not industrial compostable, but even uh, backyard compostable. And, you know, once we can get there without contaminating the soil, which has been one of the, the challenges of composting some of those materials in recent years, then I think we're, we're going to start 
seeing exciting solutions that apply even to, you know, these convenience products and make us feel less bad, you know, that this is packaging that is going to waste or into clean, you know, water streams or even landfills, but potentially can become nutrients for the soil. That is where ultimately, from a circularity perspective, we need to head to. Um, There's a lot of R&D happening right now, a lot of research and development. Um, There's a lot of uh, new businesses, new startups working in this space. Uh, It requires a lot of um, funding and money to actually get those materials through all the loops to get approved for commercial use. Um, we, when we started with Future Fit Foods, experimented with industrial compostable, we used what we found to be the very best. And we actually um, gave our customers pre-stamped envelopes that they could use to send us their packaging back at no cost to them. We also started a repack system where you could actually receive your soups in a package that then you could return back to us and could be used up to 20 times, um, a material use using um, recycled materials. And so there are ways, but these are all very expensive solutions, right? Because even uh, having to pay for, you know, pre-stamp envelope that costs money, it's not really that efficient, um, but it's better than just letting the packaging go to waste in terms of the environmental damage. So, um, yeah, I have, I'm very hopeful. I, I don't think, I think, um, I don't think it's just future fit foods who's going to be able to solve for this. Uh, but I do know of many entrepreneurs in the materials space that are, um, doing a lot of great work and they've got a lot of funding. And I do think that within five years or so, we'll see some really exciting solutions. So, um, I think it's just a matter of just waiting a little bit, um, but also starting to move into some of these other models that we just talked about, like reusing, refilling. Um, and I think once people understand the beauty of using refillable and reusable, uh, I think we'll, we'll start seeing a cultural shift. I think we've been very sold on the idea that single use is great, it's convenient, but I think there is uh, new feelings uh, that people are having now, and especially during COVID when we were all getting so much, uh, so many boxes and things delivered to our doorsteps of so the amount of packaging and waste that we, each one of us produces. And I think there's some feelings there um, that people are trying to recognize and not feel great. And I think once businesses start providing solutions where you are not compromising on convenience, but actually you're solving for um, some of the things that don't make you feel so good about single-use packaging, then I think we'll, we'll, we'll really find the path forward. Um, again, just a matter of maybe a few years, we're very close. Hmm. So with FutureFit, are you exclusively working on producing plant-based products or animal-free products? Yeah. I mean, our focus has been on um, you know, how do we actually deliver nutrition and delicious foods in uh, through plant-based foods? Um, but plant-based foods that, you know, that could be combined. I mean, if mm-hmm. you are not someone who, if you're someone who eats meat or fish, you know, you could easily combine them. I mean, our soups were all, we had plenty of customers that told us how they use the soups and added whatever they liked on end them. Uh, we do believe and we do know that um, about two-thirds of all the 
calories in the world today come from 12 ingredients. And so that those are primarily commodities. Uh, they're ingredients that have been favored and subsidized by the system. Uh, they're incredible ingredients in their own right in terms of how they can produce quick um, taste and um, calories to people. And I think you could probably name many of them, right? Because they're the majority of what we have in the supermarkets. And that being said, there are thousands and thousands of other plants uh, that could be part of our diets that are delicious and super nutritious. So our job at Future of Foods is also to provide um, some uh, diversity in terms of the ingredients that people access um, and kind of move away from what we're more used to into more nutrient uh, pack ingredients, nutrient dense. Um, and, you know, we, we also recognize that plant-based ingredients have less of an environmental impact. They have a lot of um, health benefits and there are a lot of great uh, taste experiences that come with them. So we want to provide more options for people um, so they can also discover, you know, and get all of the, the benefits, their protein benefits from plant-based. Uh, but we don't necessarily are looking to make any uh, analogs, like meat analogs or products like look like meat, um, something that people are familiar with. We're just really looking at wholesome ingredients and highlighting um, and kind of bringing them forward, uh, but not trying to replicate uh, a meat-based product. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about how corporations and um, energetic entrepreneurs like yourself fit into our wider need to transform both the food system and how we use resources on the planet. How do you see the role of governments and institutions and even consumers in that process? Well, I would say, you know, uh, with institutions, uh, nonprofits, governments, I think it's it's been... It's, it's telling people as it is, right? Um, and not trying to create narratives that are protective of current businesses. You know, we need to be just clear about, you know, what it is that we've got in our food system today and what it is that we don't have anymore. You know, like what we were talking about, you know, our food systems are not as humanizing as they, they should be, as they used to be. Um, they, they don't actually recognize the, the, the work of farmers. They don't, you don't know necessarily where things come from, where foods come from. Um, and they don't necessarily bring us together like foods brought together our great grandparents or, and, and former generations. So I do think that there is definitely um, a job to be done in terms of telling stories that are just very real about where we are with food and where you know, what we're missing from food today, right? And I'm not talking about nutrients. I'm talking about that humanity side of things. Uh, not everything is just calories or protein, right? Food is about joy. Food is about experiences. And so I would hope that more, more organizations would actually tell the full story of what we're missing here um, beyond, uh, beyond that. Um, I think the the other thing is, unfortunately, we do need regulation because, um, you know, industries are driven by profit making and we do need to make sure that people's uh, well-being and planetary well-being is taken into account. It's equally important. 
uh, even with all the money in the world, we will not be around if we don't protect our well-being and the well-being of our the planet that is our home today. So we do need regulation that uh, looks after um, how do we create foods that are truly good for humans and truly good for all of us and and with some limits, right? And because we do live in a finite, in a world of finite resources, we do have some challenges around soil depletion. We just talked about 50 to 60 harvests. So we need to get our house in order if we want to ensure that our children and grandchildren will enjoy the same kinds of foods and healthy foods as we do. Um, so we, we do need uh, a level of regulation to ensure that we're all playing by the rules that create prosperity for all. Um, and that we don't take, you know, uh, cut corners in ways that are damaging for people ultimately. The other thing I think in terms of consumers is, you know, consumers have the ability to vote with their wallets and with their choices. That's easier said than done because at the same time, you're very dependent on what choices you've got available to you. And depending on where you live in uh, here in the United States, if you're in a city or if you're in a rural area, your choices for where you get your food are very different. And so unfortunately, it's not all just based on the will of people. Sometimes it's based on the realities of whether they're buying from a gas station in the corner or they're buying from Whole Foods, <laughs> very different things, right? Or a farmer's market. So I think, you know, the ability for people to question the role of food in our livelihoods, in our well-being, in our prosperity. And if you don't have access, really thinking through how can we create access locally, right? How do we create the systems with our communities to enable access to healthy foods? How do we come together, right? How do we get access to, whether it's by coming together to those collaborative farming spaces? I think there is, you know, our ability to really challenge that what we've got is really as good as it gets and really understand that food is at the center of our well-being, our happiness, our joy, and our ability to unlock our full potential as humans. If we eat good food, we're more likely to think clearly. <laughs> we're more likely to make good decisions. We're more likely to see our children doing well. I mean, this is Justice 101. It's really, really important. And so I think for consumers, is really giving food a place that it's always held in, in our human history, which is at the center of the plate. It's really important. It unlocks our communities. It unlocks our own prosperity. So again, you know, I think we do need narratives that are transparent, honest, that tell the full story, that go beyond the tangibles into the more intangibles of the role of food, that speak about food as, you know, the basic element for living a great, fulfilled life where everyone can achieve their potential. And really not so much about quantity, but more about quality. Unfortunately, we talk a lot about quantity of food, you know, uh, how do we solve for everybody getting access to food? But it's not about quantity, it's about quality. We don't necessarily need all to be eating so much protein. There's Most people are eating plenty of protein, but we're not eating enough fiber because we're not eating enough plant-based. And so really, you know, understanding kind of the basics, I think school systems need to put more emphasis on the role of food. 
and understanding where food comes from and how it impacts our health, again, and our potential. Yeah. So I think we all have a role to play here from the larger companies that already have been in business for many, many decades, bringing food to a lot of people in the country and how can they continue to shift towards more regenerative farming and how do they continue to shift towards more innovative models that get where we move away from this single-use packaging. And you know, to the entrepreneurs who are looking for new solutions, how do we actually break away from a centralized system that is so dependent on packaging to deliver foods, but also, you know, disregard what culturally relevant foods look like if we were to actually create culturally relevant foods for different parts of the country. So again, we all have a role to play. I think the challenge is how do we make sure that we're all working and drawing towards that same direction and that we all understand why it's so important to move and change immediately. I mean, there's really no time to waste here. Yeah. Well, I love what you said about putting food at the center of the plate. I think that's a lovely place for us to wind up, Paloma. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to share the story of Future Food Foods and what we've learned through the journey. Great. We've been listening to food sustainability innovator, Paloma Lopez. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.